It happens in the blink of an eye. It felt like we just dropped out of the sky and hit the ground. Immediately inside the plane, total chaos. A moment in time that changes your life forever. When you see the pictures of the car, I don't see how anyone could survive. Often these moments are just the beginning of a new world for the people who experience them. And you know the outcome is going to be drastic, but yet you still know that you have to do it. Each episode of Just a Moment examines someone's life-changing experience and explores how they navigated through that moment to discover a new normal. And I see beauty now. This is me. I promise you will hear compelling, raw stories that may help you navigate through your own life's journey, if you'll give me just a moment. Hi, friends. I am so excited to share the first episode of my podcast with you because my guest is an incredible human being with an incredible story of survival, and it's a story people around the world watched unfold. On July 19, 1989, I was working as a TV news journalist in Virginia when news started ticking across the Associated Press wire about a United Airlines DC-10 that was in trouble. Flight 232 had taken off from Stapleton Airport in Denver, headed to Chicago O'Hare, when something went very wrong mid-flight. The hydraulic system had failed 37,000 feet above the ground, and the pilots were trying everything they could to keep that plane and 300 people on board in the air. If you Google United Flight 232, Sioux City, Iowa, you can watch the plane nearly make an emergency landing on that Sioux City runway. But the aircraft dips, the wing hits the ground, and the plane cartwheels and slides sideways down the runway before breaking apart and bursting into flame. There were no cell phone cameras at that time, of course. Very few home video cameras, in fact. They were still pretty expensive. But emergency crews knew the plane was coming in, so there were a couple of cameras rolling on that airport runway. And when that crash video was shared out to TV affiliates all over the country, including the station where I worked, I couldn't get those images out of my mind. And I couldn't believe two-thirds of the people on that plane survived the crash. Many years later, I would come face-to-face -face with one of those survivors. Jerry Schemmel was a radio announcer for the Colorado Rockies when my husband Tom Runnels was the bench coach there. When I came up with the idea for my podcast, I knew I wanted Jerry's story to be the first that I shared, and he is gracious enough to relive that story for me from the beginning. I think I, I thought I was on top of the world, to be honest with you, in July of 1989. I'd been married four years at that time, and we had just moved, my wife and I, from Kansas to Denver, and I was starting a job as a deputy commissioner of the Continental Basketball Association, which, Chris, was the NBA's minor league system back then. I uh, had a little office in Denver, and we kind of ran the minor leagues for the NBA, and I had just been there three months. I had been a freelance broadcaster and had been practicing law back in Kansas, kind of part-time. And uh, this is the big opportunity. My wife and I were kind of getting away and starting fresh. And uh, yeah, that was our move to Denver in July of 89. Wow. 
So you were how old then? 29. Jerry, okay. Yeah. So you were flying from Denver to where? Why were you on that plane? Yeah, I was flying from Denver to Chicago, and we're going to make a connection, we being the boss, uh, the boss, my, my boss, the commissioner of the CBA, a guy named Jay Ramsdell, uh, flying from Denver to Chicago, going to make a connection in Chicago, going to Columbus, Ohio. Next day in Columbus was our draft. We're going to draft our players the next day. And uh, we were actually supposed to fly at 7 o'clock in the morning and get to Columbus at noon, and that all backfired when we got to the old airport in Denver Stapleton and found out our flight was canceled. So we weren't even supposed to be on that flight to Chicago. We were supposed to take off six hours before we actually did. Wow. But you were on that plane. Something happened. Um, hydraulic system went out. Did you hear it? Because we've heard stories of people hearing a, an explosion of some kind or something. What did you hear? Yeah, it was an explosion. And, and I think that was kind of lost in the story was how it all started. And we were cruising along, Chris, at 37,000 feet. It's a two-hour flight from Denver, Chicago. So we're an hour in, like 59 minutes in. And no turbulence. We're expecting a smooth ride all the way to Chicago. And this explosion happened. And first you could hear it. And, and, and I thought it was coming from the back of the plane, which it was, and then you, you could hear it, and then you could feel it kind of come through the plane like it reverberated through the cabin. You could you could feel this shuddering. And the first thing I thought was a bomb has gone off. Honestly, I thought someone had planted a bomb, a terrorist probably, planted a bomb and it had been detonated, and then right after the explosion, we started to drop. Not a complete free fall drop, but you could feel the plane start to go down, and I thought, all right, a bomb has gone off. Uh, we're starting to drop. And uh, that's going to be it for everybody, and whenever that might be that we hit the ground. That had to be the scariest moment. Yeah. Just yeah. that initial realization of something is wrong with the plane. You're so helpless yeah. up there, right? Exactly, yeah. And, and especially without warning, uh, you know, if there was some sort of prep to it or, hey, get ready, something might happen, it'd be different. But it came out of the blue. And uh, it, was, it was strange because at first I thought, all right, we're going down. And then... I, I kind of had these conscious, calm thoughts of, all right, I got a couple of questions here. Um, how many people are in this plane that are going to die in the next couple minutes? And uh, I, for some reason, came up with 200. I was way off. There were almost 300 of us. And then the other question I had was, all right, how, how long does it take a jumbo jet to drop 37,000 feet before we hit the ground? So I was like, all right, I have no idea how long we're going to drop here. Okay. So it was... It was fear initially, and then it was, all right, I've got to calculate a couple things before I die. Um, That's kind of the, the crazy thought I had. I guess that is one of the questions that I've been thinking about. What does go through your mind in those moments when you think this might be the end? Yeah, there were a couple different ones with us. One was that, that initial explosion, and it was, all right, well, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass away with all, the other, all these other people. Um, what's that going to be like? Um, but it was calm. And then after... We came out of our drop and 45 minutes later got ready to, to hit. We were told it was going to be a crash landing. We knew it was at stake and we had practiced emergency landing procedures and all that kind of stuff. Then the thought was, all right, if I'm dead or hurt seriously, I'm not going to be able to do anything. But if I'm not, let's not panic. Don't, don't flee the plane. Don't look at yourself. Try to help other people if, if you have that opportunity. And, and I thought about that and that paid off. And then there were thoughts of, all right, if I don't make it, what's this going to be like? Um, I had no spiritual foundation back then at all. I became a Christian later because of the crash. But I had two sisters who died, uh, older sisters who I never met. And I thought, wow, I have a chance to meet my sisters I never met, heard all about. Um, and, and I thought that was kind of an exciting point for me. 
Are you afraid of like the physical pain? Like, were you thinking this is going to hurt this or anything like that? Um, I, not really. Um, we were told that we were, it was going to be rough. It was going to be a crash landing because they had so little control of the plane. And I never really thought about that. I thought about, all right, just react to the circumstance. You know the brace position. You're going to be as, as safe as you can on impact. And then you have to react to things. But it wasn't like, oh, man, it's, I'm going to experience pain or what's this going to be like? It was, all right, just get ready for whatever might happen. What was the information you were receiving from the captain and the flight attendants? What were they actually telling yeah. you? After we came out of the drop, Chris, uh, there was about a three or four minute period there where we had leveled off again and nothing was said. We had no idea what was going on. We waited very anxiously. And Captain Al Haynes, our cockpit captain, came on the first time and said that the explosion we heard was not a bomb going off, but he said the number two engine, like you said, exploded. And he said when it did, it injured the rear of the aircraft. And he said, we're having a lot of trouble controlling the plane, which brought some of the panic back in that it subsided. And then he said, we've been given a directive, make an emergency landing in Sioux City, Iowa. He said, I want everybody in their seats. Uh, your seat belts are, are fastened, they're pulled tight. You cannot get out of your seat under any circumstance. You can't get up and talk to people. You can't get up and go to the bathroom. You have to stay in your seat because he said, we're in serious trouble. And when he said that, that brought some, of, some more of the panic back. And then the flight attendants uh, decided they were gonna, because we had time, take us through the emergency landing procedures not once, but twice. Mm -hmm. We had all this time. We kept circling around the airport trying to get on that heading and had time to practice the emergency landing procedures, which is kind of odd to, to practice for a, a crash landing, but we did it twice and I think that paid off. But uh, they were extremely calm. Uh, they acted like they'd done it a million times and it turned out none of the flight attendants had ever prepared a cabin for an emergency landing. So uh, they did a masterful job. And I think by the time we got ready to hit the ground. We were probably as ready because of them, as ment mentally and physically as we possibly could be. Wow. Um, you know, this is 1989. There are no cell phones. Right. There are no laptops. You had no way to communicate any of this to your wife, to any of your loved ones. You had to be thinking about them and, wow, I wish I could make a phone call or something, right? What yeah. what what are yeah. you thinking about that? Yeah, you know, when 9-11 when hit and you heard about the people in Flight 93 being able to, to get on their cell phones to talk to loved ones, I said, wow, that would have been nice to do. Um, yeah, I, th I thought about my wife. Like I said, we've been married four years, and um, I, I thought a lot about not being able to to talk to her before I died. That was the thought I had. Then I kept going back to the last three words I told her that morning were, I love you. And I thought, all right, if I have to go, maybe that's in place. And um, I just bought a new life insurance policy. So I thought, all right, well, she's got some money coming too. I said, I love you. So maybe that's the best way that could have happened. But yeah, I was I was hoping I would get a chance to to, to talk to her again, and I didn't think I was going to get that chance for a while, and and uh, that cell phone uh, on final approach would have been real nice, but I didn't have that, and I just tried to make the the most of it. Did you find out later? Did that? Did any of them know that you were on that plane? I mean, you weren't supposed to be on that particular flight. Did they know what was happening? Because I recall us getting notice that this plane actually was going to be coming in, you know, and the outcome might not be great. Yeah. And that's why the cameras were there and, you know, they were able to prepare for you coming into Sioux City. But did your loved ones know that you were on that plane they, and what they, was happening? They didn't, no. Uh, my wife had no idea. Um, her, her first communication was, 
Well, I, when I finally got to a phone, Chris, it was probably uh, an hour after the, uh, the crash. They had taken the people who weren't hurt seriously to a building on the airport grounds, and I was one of them. And we were just sitting in this room waiting to go to the hospital because everybody was going to go and waiting for a phone. Uh, and there was one phone in this room, and everybody was lined up to, to use it. And I finally got to it, and I called my wife. And uh, apparently, uh, I, I'm sorry, I called my office because I didn't have my wife's phone number. She had just started a new job that week, and so I didn't have her phone number. So I called my office and talked to a secretary and I said, hey, we've been in this crash. I don't know where Jay is, uh, but I'm okay. Would you call Diane? She's working at Cigna Health Plan. I don't know what the number is, but, and so the first thing my wife heard was, your husband's been in a crash, but he's alive. So that's the first Diane heard. And then um, about an hour after that, I, I got to another phone and called my parents and they had no idea. They had no idea there was a crash or that I was in one. And I talked to my dad and um, I said, Dad, uh, I've been in a plane crash. And he's like, oh my gosh, we're watching this coverage on, on TV of Sioux City. You were in that yeah. crash. I said, yeah. And then I don't remember anything because he started crying and I started crying and, and that was it. But that's how, that's how my family found out. My wife uh, uh, found out that I was on the plane, uh, but I was okay. And then I talked to her probably two hours later almost a blessing, right? For them not to know yeah. and have that fear until yeah. they're able to see that you yeah. are okay. At Absolutely. The end of it. Yeah. I think that way it worked out was perfect. Yeah. One of the interesting factors about this particular flight too, was that there was some kind of special they were running for children, right? So it was, uh, there were more than 50 kids on that flight right. as well. Some of them didn't have their own seats. We can all think about flying with our kids and holding them on our laps, right? When we go through. So, um, were there any special um, instructions that you guys were given for the children? Were mothers holding children on their laps? What was it like with yeah. the kids? Been a little controversial, actually. The policy back then with the FAA was for kids who didn't have their own seat. This doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense. Didn't to me back then. I remember thinking that this isn't very safe. But to put them on the floor rather than in your lap. And now I think the mandate is if it doesn't have your own seat, you have to put in your lap, put the belt around both of you. But they had as they, they had the, the parents put the kids on the floor. They brought pillows from the overhead bin and had pillows put around them. And then they, they said, just put your kids between your feet, put pillows around them. And that was the policy back then. So that they were not strapped in. Uh, they, there was no really way to, to restrain them. If you are an adult, you hit the ground like we did, you're not going to be able to hold them with your feet or your hands. So that was the policy back then. And I remember thinking that kids who, who don't have their own seat, put them on the floor. And there was a woman in front of me and she's trying to put this little boy on the floor and he doesn't want to go. And it, it was, it was a little bit of a mess. Yeah. Tell me about the impact. I mean, the captain says, "Where?" I mean, you're looking at the ground. I do this every time I fly, right? You're looking out the window yep. and you're like, okay, we're only 10 feet off the ground. This can't be bad. But you guys were coming in real fast, yeah. faster than you should have been. Yeah. They were prepared for you on the ground. Right. But wing kind of tipped and hit and described what that yeah. impact was like for you. Yeah, yeah. First, first, Chris, uh, we were coming in, we were screaming across the ground. We, we hit at 257 miles an hour, 255, and a normal DC-10 landing is 125. And so I've had pilots and aviation experts tell me there is no way you can land a plane that fast, even if you come in straight. 
Um, so we're in trouble just with the airspeed. Um, but at the, at the end, you're right, we dipped down, that, that right wing went down, left wing came up, we hit it at a 19 degree angle, so that meant the right wing actually hit the edge of the runway first, which you really can't see in the video. But uh, to answer your question, complete chaos when we hit the ground. I mean, first, it felt like we just dropped out of the sky and hit the ground, which is kind of what we did at that airspeed, but immediately inside the plane, total chaos. I mean, bodies are being thrown from their chairs. Some were still strapped in their chairs. The chairs had given, they were thrown. Smoke and fire and debris being whipped around all in the first couple of seconds after we hit down. So the initial impact was, we, we tried to get ready for it mentally and physically. I don't think anybody was ready for how hard we hit. Mm -hmm. And the plane broke apart, right, when yeah. you came down. Mm -hmm. So what do you know what seat you were sitting in? Do you yeah. still remember? Yeah, I was in 23E. Uh, DC-10 has uh, nine seats across. There are five in the middle and then two on each side along the aisles. And so I was in the middle section of row 23, and DC-10 has 37 rows. So I'm on the middle of the plane, basically. I'm a little toward the back, but right in the middle of the plane for the most part. And that proved to be a good place to be on this particular flight. It, it did, yeah. yeah. I was I was close to some chaos, but it turned out to, to be a, a good spot for me. Um, we hit the ground and we slid a long ways and we actually flipped over and that's where the plane broke into pieces. But um, to my left, um, actually probably a few feet, when we flipped over, the ceiling actually caved in and separated me from the other side of the plane. And a lot of people to my left didn't make it. So I was right on the edge of a lot of people who died in the crash. But where I was sitting turned out to be a, a great spot. I stayed in my seat and the ceiling caved in, but not didn't get me. So chaos, planes broken, you, I mean, you're finally motionless now, right? You, you're stopped. Are you still strapped in your seat? Are you still in a big chunk of the plane with a lot of the other passengers? Yeah. Can, can you see a big hole in a plane that you can get out of? Like what, what is? Yeah, it, it didn't happen all that quickly, but yeah, those things happened. That came to a stop and I was still, I was upside down. We, we flipped over and just continued to slide upside down and backwards for over a mile. So we, we, we slid, you know, almost 6,000 feet, I think. Um, and came to stop and, and I was still hanging upside down. And I really, for a moment, had to figure out whether I was alive or not because I, I wasn't sure in all the chaos. And I had, uh, when we came to a halt, I had a quick jolt and my head kind of hit the back of my seat back when we stopped, we stopped very suddenly. And I got a whiplash, whiplash diagnosis from that, but I didn't feel that at the time. But um, I'm hanging upside down and figured out I'm alive. And then I unbuckled my seatbelt and dropped down the ceiling because we're upside down. And then, Chris, I didn't see any way to get out. My, my, I had a plan with a flight attendant who was sitting over to my left in front of me about a, uh, two rows uh, was to open the emergency exit and go down this, deploy the chute, go down the chute uh, first and then help people at the bottom and she would help people get in it. When we came to halt, I, I looked over there and it was gone. There wasn't anything left of that emergency exit. I could see it, but it was burning and the, the flight attendant was in a jump seat next to it. It wasn't there anymore. I could see the the jump seat, but she wasn't in it. So I thought, I don't really have a plan B, so I'll just react. So I wanted to go forward for some reason. And I think it was because the next emergency exit was in front of me and I couldn't. There was this wall of smoke just coming from the front to the back of the plane and forced me to, to, to go back um, toward the back of the plane. And when I did, I encountered a couple other guys um, who weren't hurt seriously like me. And one said to the other two of us, he said, 
let's just start helping some people and maybe we can find a way out in the process because I didn't see any way to go at that point. It was just dark and, and full of smoke and, and all the lights had gone out. And so we started moving to the back of the plane and this sounds kind of crazy, but literally hurting people like cattle that we thought were alive. We had to leave the people who didn't think we didn't think were alive. And <clears throat> That sounds morbid, but that's what we had to do to get away from the smoke. Mm -hmm. And most of the people who were alive were either in a daze or hurt physically or both. And so we just started pushing people. And finally, I think probably after two or three minutes, I saw this opening. I saw where the back of the plane had broken off from us. And I saw people going through that hole to the outside. And I thought, that's my way to get out. I'll stay in as long as I can and try to help. And then I'll get out that way. And so I was praying that plane probably two or three minutes at the most initially. You... <clears throat> exited the plane from what I understand and then went back in because you heard something. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I got outside the plane and, and, um, I, I remember thinking, all right, I've got outside this plane and now I need to run away because it, because it always explodes on TV, right? When you get us something, here we get something's burning, it explodes. And I thought it's going to explode. So I better run away. And about the time I had that thought, it took maybe two or three steps out into a cornfield. We were going to end up in a cornfield and I heard a baby crying back inside the wreckage. And, and Chris, I really, I really mean this. I don't, I don't mean to be overly humble about this. I'm not trying to downplay what I did, but I came out of the crash labeled a hero because I went back and grabbed this girl and it never felt that way. It, it honestly didn't. And, and this is why I heard a baby crying back inside the wreckage and I don't remember anything after that. I, I didn't weigh the risk. I didn't think about it exploding. I didn't think about being a hero. It just happened. I heard a baby crying. Next thing I know, I'm back inside the plane. And I don't even remember turning around and going back in. I remember all the smoke and that's about it. But yeah, it turns out there was an 11-month-old baby girl. She was two weeks shy of her first birthday. Crazy story. Sitting in row 11, so right behind first class, on the floor, like I talked about, between her mother's feet. Hit the ground. She's thrown to the back of the plane in row 26 or 27, somewhere in there, into an overhead bin oh that gosh. closes and locks on her. And so she's trapped inside this overhead bin, and we're upside down, so it's below me rather than above me, and completely full of smoke. I can't see anything, so I feel around. I realize what's what's happened, and it was easy to do it. I just lifted the latch and the lid and lifted her out and sh shot out the plane the second time. Wow. Did you carry her out? Yeah. 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 And then I then I ran away from the plane thinking it was going to explode. Yeah. Like it does on MacGyver every, well, every episode. That's right, every episode. <laughs> what... Um, Girl's mom? Yeah, a uh, whole family. There was a family of five. They all survived the crash, amazingly. Wow. Yeah, parents and two older brothers. The boys were uh, four and six, and Sabrina was less than a year old at that time. Yeah, they all five survived the crash. So, mm -hmm. I mean, as a mom, hmm. you're trying to be humble about this, but there is no value or there's not enough that you could say about somebody, right, that would risk their life to save your child yeah. like that. Are you still in touch with that family? Yeah, yeah, that, that story uh, uh, wasn't written, the end of it wasn't written the way I would have written it, um, but uh, Sabrina at the age of, Sabrina Michelson is her name, at the age of 20 um, died of a drug overdose, and that was in 2008. And I had been in close contact with her parents to answer your question, and her brothers and her for all that time, for 20 years. And, uh, and then I stopped getting this correspondence and no notes and no emails and I knew something was wrong and I found out that she had, had uh, died of a drug overdose, which we don't know is accidental or suicidal today. I mean, she, there was no suicide known or anything. So, uh, but yeah, we kept in close contact for a long time. Just a 
beautiful girl. I mean, you you looked at her and thought, wow, that's a that's a beauty queen. She was just absolutely amazing and this great personality, and we all still miss her a lot. What about the other people in the flight? Do you guys have reunions? I mean, this is such a small club of yeah. people who have ever gone through any I mean nobody else just yeah. just the 296 of you right that have shared this experience you keep in touch do you have reunions with these folks I do yeah we have kept in touch we being my wife and I over the years with probably I would say probably 15 or 20 people most mm -hmm. of them in the Denver area that we see and run into a lot and keep in contact with uh, not only just survivors Chris but um, families and members uh, family members of people who died uh, mm -hmm. come close uh, with those guys too so uh, and that's been great that's been rewarding I think for both sides and uh, I just I just saw a couple at a Rockies game the other day walking through the the concourse uh, that uh, that survived the crash that were sitting right behind me and we kind of reunited a little bit but yeah the numbers we've had reunions we had five and ten and twenty and twenty five um, and at the beginning they were well populated as we went they became less and less which I think is probably healthy didn't mm -hmm. need to have that the camaraderie anymore didn't need to see each other like we did at the beginning but there's still a group of us that have become very very close over the years and uh, you've lost some of those survivors as you yeah. said um, the young uh, lady that you had saved and you know I know um, the pilots are they the two pilots are they both um, yeah. gone now um, one has passed away uh, one uh, Danny Fitch passed away of cancer not mm -hmm. because of the crash but of cancer a couple of years ago but the rest of them and the all the flight attendants other than the one who perished in the crash Renee um, are are still going and active and good friends okay so you're out of the chaos and you have um, gone through this ordeal you're not in Columbus for your uh, draft, right? I mean, what happens after they check you out and you're okay? Do you get on another plane to go back to where you need to go? <laughs> yeah, I did. And it's funny you asked that question because uh, I remember this, I was just thinking about this on the anniversary of the day. It's like, I went to, everybody's gonna go to the hospital no matter what their injury. So I went, I got checked out. They didn't realize I'd taken a lot of smoke and they, they said, you're fine, so you can go. It's like, well, where do I go? What, what, where, where do I, what do I do now? Right. I needed to find Jay is what I need to do. So um, yeah, um, I, I spent that night, crash happened at four o'clock in the afternoon. I spent that night and all through the morning looking for Jay, uh, who died in the crash and going from hospital to hospital, went to the morgue at the airport, which is a wonderful experience. Um, and then the next day at four o'clock, so 24 hours later, United had contacted me and said, we're bringing a plane into Sioux City and we're going to take anybody back to Denver wants to go. And I they said, you want to go? And I said, yeah, I, I do. So that um, sounds more heroic than it really was. But I got back on a plane one day later and I, I was so I was so exhausted, Chris. I'd never been so tired in my whole life. And I, was, I, I remember walking that plane and sitting down in the seat, pulling my seatbelt on. And then I fell asleep immediately, and I woke up and we landed in Denver. So, um, like I wrote in my book, I got right back on the horse after I got bucked off, and I slept in the saddle for an hour and a half before we landed again. Yeah. Um, was there any doubt in your mind that you were going to get back on another plane after what had happened to you? No, there, there wasn't really. Um, and it's interesting because I had a conscious thought uh, that night, was, and it was, you know what, I'm going to fly again. If, if this is the lifestyle that I want to... I want to pursue and uh, want to be a broadcaster and want to be a sportsman, whatever that might be. I knew I had to travel again and I wasn't going to let that. I remember thinking that night, you got to fly again. Don't let this 
take you down and keep you down. So I thought it was important to get back on a plane again. Um, and I'll be honest, there, there have been days when there's been some anxiety, but not so much that I couldn't fly. But I thought it was important to get back on a plane again the next day, and, and I did that, and I think it paid off. Looking at some of these documentaries, seeing news pieces from then and from subsequent years when they've looked back and remembered, I just feel like you could be, after an incident like that, just totally gripped yeah. by fear. You And I'm sure some of the people in the plane were and are maybe still today so traumatized by that. How did you move forward because I just can see that you could roll into a ball and never leave your house again after something like that happens to you. So how did you, did you go to counseling? Did you talk yourself through it? How did you walk that journey? Yeah. And by the way, there are a lot of people from our crash that are in that group you just talked about mm -hmm. who, who are just gripped by fear and they're, they're defenseless right now. And a couple of them are in institutions because of it. Um, be honest, I struggle with all the stuff that happens after an event like that, post-trauma stress disorder, all those symptoms hit me, the survivor's guilt and the anger and the, the depression, all that kind of stuff. And, and um, I went to counseling and I only did it for a couple times because I remember the probably the second time I went, I was told that what I was going through, all these symptoms were natural. It's a natural consequence of what you go through if you're in a tragedy. And I thought, well, I'm not going crazy. So that's, that's a good place to start. Um, but I did, I did struggle with it, and especially the survivor's guilt, because there was a little boy that, that I, I talked about earlier sitting in front of me who died in the crash, and, and that one really got me. He was you know, two and a half feet away from me, and, and uh, I survive, and he dies in the crash. It just really, I, I, I had a lot of trouble processing all that, and that's the nightmares I had w would be of him. Um, and there came to a point, it was actually the 10-month anniversary of the crash, so less than a year after the crash, came to a point where... Um, I sat down one day in a chair, and I remember this so distinctly, like it happened yesterday, but I realized for the first time in my life, I had been knocked down, and I could not pick myself back up. I was very independent. It came from a big family, and parents didn't have any money. We all did stuff on our, we all, we just, we worked really hard to do, to get where we were in life, and, and, um, and I had always, whenever I had a problem, fixed it myself, and I couldn't fix this one, mm -hmm. and I just sort of surrendered. I just told God, and again, I had no spiritual foundation, but I just told God that afternoon that um, I needed his help. I couldn't do this on my own anymore. And I said, just please come into my life and give me some kind of relief from this crash. I didn't want it because my marriage is falling apart and I didn't have, a, I quit my job and, and depression and all that stuff. And I said, I don't, I don't need my marriage fixed. I don't need a new job. I don't need to come out of depression. I said, God, just give me something to hold on to here because I can't do this by myself anymore. And I think you can appreciate this, but a lot of people think this is corny. But when I said that, something came over me. It wasn't an audible voice. It wasn't this physical strength. But it was something that just told me that because of what I had done, the ally I invited in my life, that eventually, not that moment, but eventually, I was going to win every single battle. It wasn't going to be easy, but the ally I had fighting that battle with me was the right one, and I was going to win. I just knew that it was going to, I just had this feeling that that, that was the beginning for me. And, and that made all the difference for me. That was the start for me. That was the... The, the initial, uh, I think, surrender that got me to deal with that crash the best that I could. And, you know, it, it's a process. I mean, this is not something that you um, do overnight, obviously. I mean, I can imagine that still today, 30 years later, you know, you think back on some of that and kind of use those lessons in your life. So 
God became a, a big figure in your yeah. life yeah. at that point, mm -hmm. at that moment. Yeah, absolutely. And then to this very day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you're right. It's a process. It, it built from there. That was that was step one for me. And um, uh, I remember that afternoon and my wife, I wasn't working. My wife was working, thank God, and our marriage is falling apart and all this. And we weren't even talking. And she, she came home. I didn't say anything to her that night. And the next morning, I had this desire to talk to my wife again. <laughs> I was like, wow, well, there's a step for you. You're actually communicating. Um, and I told her about what happened. And we started, you know, talking again. And and then the marriage kind of came back around and now we've been married 30, almost 34 years and it couldn't be better. Um, it, but, but everything sort of started to get better after that point and then grew from there. And if I had, if, have I had rough days since then with the plane crash? Yes, absolutely. We, we all do after tragedies, but it just sort of built and got stronger and stronger. Like you said, it's a process to where today I just feel like, um, it, it couldn't be any better than it is because of that first moment that God gave me that strength. Do you feel like you were meant to be in that moment and the people that you helped and the lessons that you've learned and the way that you've moved your life yeah. forward, that, that you were meant to be on that plane? I mean, yeah. I can see, especially because you weren't even supposed to be on yeah, it, right? 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 I mean, I can see that you could see some kind of divine plan yeah. there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, and, and I didn't believe that for a while. For the first year or so, I, I really struggled with that. And I kept thinking I would have written the script differently. I would have landed that plane safely in Sioux City. We would have walked off and I would have got to Columbus some other way and we just laughed about it. Um, but it didn't happen that way. And I don't write perfect scripts. I think God does. And Chris, I think there are probably multiple reasons why I was on that plane. Um, and I think one of them is to do this, is to share the story. Uh, with people like you, and, and maybe when somebody hears it or sees it or both, they have a positive influence, and maybe they went through something similar and realized, you know what, you can move forward after that, because Jerry Chemmel's a small Midwestern small-town guy who didn't have a lot going for him that is able to do it than anybody can, I, and I really believe that. I'm not trying to downplay that. So yeah, to answer your question, I, I think there, was, there were multiple reasons I was in that plane, in, in that circumstance, in that seat, that particular time. Um, and I, I don't know all those answers, but I think I have some of them, but I think I'll get them all someday when I leave the earth. Talk about that survivor's guilt just mm -hmm. for a moment about, uh, you asked that question, I'm assuming, why me? Mm -hmm. why, did, why was I spared and yeah. these people were not? And yeah. how you kind of reconcile that. Yeah. Survivor guilt is real, you know, it, it really is. And I had heard that term before uh, I was in this plane crash and I thought, well, whatever, that, you know, that's for weak people or whatever that might be. But it's real. Survivor's guilt is real. And for me, it really went back to that boy sitting in front of me. And for a year, I had these nightmares about we'd crash and I can't find him, which is exactly what happened on the plane. And, and the story went that um, I, uh, these two were sitting in front of me, the mom and the boy, and uh, before we hit, I told the woman, I said, hey, you're going to be my priority. When we come to a stop, I'm going to make sure you guys are okay, and especially your son. I'll make sure that he's good. And so we hit the ground, all this chaos, Chris, and, and I'm trying to get out of the plane and helping other people, and I encounter her. And she's just roaming around in, the, in this smoke without her son. And I said, you've got to leave the plane. And she said, I'm not leaving the plane until I find my son. And I said, well, I'll find your son, but you have to leave. And so she, and she turned around and left. She went out the, the, the exit, and I couldn't find her son. And she he died in the crash. And so that, that's probably as, as real a, as, as a 
point for survivor guilt as you can get. And it just, it just really hit me hard. And I'd wake up thinking I should be the luckiest guy in the world because I survived this crash when everybody around me died. And I wanted to feel that and I couldn't. I, I just thought, wow, I, I had this boy sitting two and a half feet in front. He's playing peekaboo with me in one moment. Next moment he's dead. Mm -hmm. And I just really struggled with that. And I said, why couldn't our, our spots been switched? And why didn't I switch with the person sitting next to her? And so I could have helped him and maybe held him down. You know, just all these, these what ifs run through your head. And finally I got to the point where I realized I probably did all I could. And that was, a, that was a hard thing for me to reach, a hard point for me to reach. And then when I got to that point, I'm thinking, all right, I, I tried. I really did. I, I, I may have uh, done a few things differently if I had a chance to do it over with, but I did my best. And once that came, the survivor's guilt kind of went away a little bit. You really have lived your life in service mm -hmm. to other people. That's been something that's been really important to you. Yeah. You've done your bike rides. Mm -hmm. um, raised money, raised awareness about all of these things. Is that something that came out of your moment uh, in the plane crash and your moment of inviting God into your yeah, life? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, like I said, I think there's multiple reasons why I survived the crash. I think one of them is to, to use it to, to help other people. And uh, I, I got after the crash this crazy uh, love affair with cycling. I don't know really how that happened. I, bet I was a triathlete before the crash and just kind of went along with riding the bike because it was a necessary part of the triathlon. But after I got, after the plane crash, I got back on a bike, Chris, and it was just, there was something about it felt great. It, I don't know what it was, but um, I tell people that a part of me died in that cornfield in Sioux City and uh, uh, cycling makes me feel alive again. I feel like I don't know, because of the pain or the exertion or the sweat or the speed, whatever it is, I feel like I'm living again when I'm on a bicycle. So I took that and, and, and tried to use it to help other people, and that's to, to ride my bike and raise money for, for causes. And, and that's been really rewarding for me. That's one of the, the aspects of surviving that crash that I feel great about, been able to, to get back on a bike and use that bike as not only therapy for me, but to help other people. Tell me about the causes that mm -hmm. you have yeah. been uh, involved with? Yeah, the, the first ride across America was um, for Children's Hospital. We helped build a playground um, in a, the Children's Hospital in Denver. And uh, I think we raised, gosh, we did, we had some matching funds there. We raised $250,000, I think, that first year with some matching funds. So they got the whole playground built. It was awesome. And then uh, the second year I did the ride across America, I did it for uh, a baseball field, a football field at uh, a Christian school where our kids went to. That got built, not from all of our funds, but, um, and then uh, the next next time I did a race was for veterans. Uh, Pause for Purple Hearts. They, uh, they, they train service dogs for veterans. Great, great military cause. My, my father was in World War II and my father-in-law in the Korean War and all that. So uh, the veterans thing was a big thing for me. So we helped them raise money for that. And then the last time, the last race I did was um, for an orphanage in Haiti to help get that building built. And we gave them $100,000 and that building is built. So um, that's been really rewarding um, to do those causes and to see that money have a tangible effect on something. A physical effect is is really what I, I don't want to just give money to a cause. I want to, I, want, I like to see the result and to see these physical buildings and whatever else goes up is really rewarding. 
why those causes? Mm -hmm. Like, how do these, you know, yeah. you're, did, do you plan the ride and then say, I'm going to look for a cause mm -hmm. or does this cause come to you and you say, I think I can help this way? Yeah, no, the cause comes first. Yeah. And then, so we set up the fundraising after that. My wife had a lot of input with that. Uh, the Children's Hospital one is, is hard to say no to, mm -hmm. especially when you visit over there. Mm -hmm. um, and so we want to do that one. Like I said, uh, we, I come from a military family. <clears throat> my sister was in Operation Desert Storm as an uh, as a Air Force nurse, and my dad was in World War II. So the, the veterans thing was important. So we want to do a veterans one, and these guys are really helpful raising these these dogs. We, we love animals. Um, and then the, the, the orphanage in Haiti came about from a trip my wife and kids made to Haiti in 2014, um, where we saw the, the incredible devastation from that hurricane and the way people live over there. The you know, unemployment rate's still 85% in Haiti. I mean, it's a devastated place. And so we want to do something with that and we help raise money for an orphanage. So everyone was from a kind of a personal standpoint or personal experience, all these causes. And, and then my wife and I just talk it through and we decide what we want to do. And when you say right across America, you're talking about you physically going from coast to coast, correct? This is yeah. not you're doing a leg of the race and other people are doing other legs. I mean, that's how many miles, Jerry, each Three, time 3, you do this? or so, yeah. Yeah. 3,000 miles. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't, it takes you how long to do them? Well, the two, the two rides I did were on my own. And that was, that was about 100 miles a day. So it took me a month. And that was back when I was doing the Nuggets, doing the basketball. So I had the summers off and we could do that. It was actually great. It was like a family vacation. We had two kids and we would, we would go 100 miles a day. And then the kids loved it because they were in the new motel swimming pool every day. And they got to eat out every night and all that. So they loved it. So those are the two rides. And then in 2015, I did the Race Across America, which is a big deal. I mean, that was, and I did that with a relay partner. So I only did 1500 miles. I didn't do 3000, oh, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that was actually harder. That was much harder than doing. Why? Because we, we were racing. We were nonstop. It was 24 seven. We, and we do, we just went all the way through hour on hour off. So very little sleep. We actually won the two person division, um, in 2015. And so that was a real, really, it was a great challenge. That was the one for the orphanage in Haiti. Um, which is um, a great cause, but it was a really hard, challenging race, but very rewarding at the same time. Were the other people you were racing um, doing different causes? Everybody yeah. has their own cause mm -hmm. that they yeah yeah, that they yeah. Race and, for. and the causes are they run the gamut everything you, you can imagine in terms of charities. But yeah, everybody's doing some kind of charity. And actually, I want to mention that there is also a documentary, right, about yeah. one of your... Tell me about that. That one, yeah. It was from 2015, our Race Across America. Um, I went to a, a buddy of mine who was just a video guy in Denver, and I said, hey, you want to come along on this crazy thing we're doing and just take some pictures? And he said, sure, I'll come along. I'll be part of your crew and help you and all that. And then, he, and then a month later, he calls me and says, you know what? I, I'm thinking about doing a film. Can I, can I bring a camera crew? I said, well, if you want to, yeah. So there was no... There was no plan to do a documentary. So this guy, first time filmmaker, had 800 hours of film footage. You oh can gosh. appreciate that, yeah. Chris. 800, when he got done with this race, 800 hours. Uh, and a lot of it was interviews on the side and all that stuff, but it was just a, and so he thought, I think I got a film here. So six months later, he says, come on over to my place. I want to show you this film. And it was, I thought it was great. And it was really a documentary and he, he, he really talented guy. And he put this together and, and again, no funding, all on his own in his basement, little studio, editing studio. And he put this together, 
showed it to some people and they loved it. And so it, it came out and they won some awards and we were on the big screen for a couple of days. And so it's called Godspeed, the race across America. And it's been a lot of fun doing. It's um, mm -hmm. gripping too. I mean, if you have a chance to, to watch it, really, you should watch it because it really shows not just um, the rigor that you go through, but all the elements. I don't think people can appreciate, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if it's torrential rain, you're still yeah. riding. Yeah. And, and that it, it's so, you can just kind of see that determination and <laughs> anguish on your faces. And, you know, it, it, it's really amazing. Um, A lot of people say insanity. They can see <laughs> insanity rather than determination. <laughs> you... Um, when you're in those moments of, you know, riding your bike, you're in pain, you're exerting every bit of energy that you have to give in a situation like that. Do you go back to that moment of the plane crash and, and what you've learned there? And a lot. How yeah. does that impact you? I do. I do that a lot. Yeah, it, and and it's and it's all it's all good. It's not it's not unhealthy stuff. Um, you know what I, I think about a lot is I think about the when when times are hard when I'm doing hard rides or there's torrential rain. I, I think about the 112 people who don't have this opportunity. 112 people died in a crash, who don't have the chance to ride their bike anymore. And I think about the the family members of people who died who are still just. Um, have, have lives that have been shattered still. They have not been able to pick up the pieces. And I probably wouldn't either if I lost a loved one in that race. And I thought, you know, I'd do this for them. They, I, I'm not suffering like they are. I didn't lose a, a family member. I lost a good friend, but I didn't lose a, a dad or a mom or a sister or a brother. And uh, let me do this for them. If, if they can endure these 30 years of pain because of their lost loved one, I can ride my bike a little bit further and I can, I can get through this rainstorm. Yeah. Um. What is your message to people? I mean, you have, you know, r really your life has taken probably a very different direction since you walked out of that plane crash than it would have if you hadn't been on that, yeah. on that plane. Yeah. It's this, Chris, um, and, and I credit my wife for part of this too. Uh, she said a long time ago, something that really made sense to me that stuck with me. She said, everybody has their own plane crash. Everybody has their own. You, you have yours. I don't know exactly what yours is, but you have yours. It might, and, and, our, and the plane crashes for people might not be as bad as what I went through. It could be worse than what I went through. Um, you know, I've never had to bury a child, and I have people, friends who have had to do that. Um, everybody has their own plane crash. But we, we need to know that we can work past that plane crash. No matter how bad it is, we can turn tragedy into triumph. That plane crash in your life doesn't have to define you. It doesn't have to hold you back. It doesn't have to grip you every single day. You can break out of that grip and still lead a great life and realize your dreams and start checking off your bucket list and do all the things you wanted to do and live this full, healthy, fun life that, that your plane crash doesn't have to hold you back. And I, and I don't mean to be overly humble about this, but I mean this. If I can do it, anybody can, and I really believe that. Would you go so far to say that um, your life might in fact be better than it would have been if you hadn't gone through the crash? Yes, I, I, can, I can honestly answer that. For a long time I couldn't. I, I couldn't answer that yes. Um, for a long time 
I, I just wish that it never would have happened, but I know that I can't go back and change that. And now that I know um, all that and, and feel the effects I've had of this plane crash, good and bad, I can say that, that it's a good thing. Um, would I have um, written the script differently? Yeah, I, I would have. I, I, I would have written a script where 112 people didn't have to die. Um, but I don't write that script, and so I got to go along with what the script that God has given me. And I feel like, yes, I'm a better person because of it, without any question today. Jerry's story is truly remarkable, and I love the point that he made about all of us having a plane crash in our lives. It might not be that dramatic, but we all have moments of trauma or change that we have to navigate through. Jerry has been such an inspiration to me over the years because in his moment of tragedy, he found his faith and found purpose in life through helping others. As a matter of fact, Jerry has another big bicycle race beginning June 15th. He has set a goal to complete a solo race across America to raise money for the Kyle Pease Foundation. That means he has to ride 3,060 miles in just 12 days. If you'd like to support Jerry and his race across America, learn more about his books or documentary film, go to jerryshemmel.com. I'm putting a link in the podcast notes to make it easy for you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe to the podcast and spread the word. I have many more remarkable stories to share with you in just a moment.